It starts with a dark reality in verse 17. So this, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. You see, spiritually, if you're a Christian, you're not a Gentile anymore. You are ethnically, you are physically. Spiritually, if you're a Christian, you're a child of Abraham. You're a spiritual Jew. You've been grafted in to the Israel of God. But you were a Gentile, and at that point, verse 18, you were darkened in your understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in you, because of the hardness of your heart. That was you, Christian, but God. But God. Aren't you grateful for that? Let's go to Him now and thank Him for that grace that He's given us, and then we'll dig into His Word. Oh, Father, we are amazed as we stand in Your presence. We are amazed as we come to You and as as it were, speak to You face to face like Moses. We have You meeting with us in Your Word and through the means of grace. Heaven coming down, glory filling our soul. And it is our absolute joy and thrill to commune with You. To behold You in Your glory. We pray, Father, that You would help us as a church, us as Your people, to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. That we would no longer walk as we once did. We used to be darkened in our understanding. We used to be in a state of unregeneracy. Our hearts were hardened by sin. We had a heart of stone that loved iniquity and hated righteousness, loved lawlessness and hated God. But You in Your mercy came to us. You removed our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. You've put Your Spirit within us to cause us to obey Your commandments. You've put the fear of God in our hearts that we might not turn away from You. And You will never turn away from us. You have given us so many spiritual blessings in Christ. In fact, Paul would say, you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Either we have them now in possession, or we have them in the future on a guaranteed promise from a God who cannot lie. And so Lord, we thank You for all that You've given us, all that You've done for us. Help us now to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Help us to put aside the remnants of the old self that remain, the principle of sin that remains within our unredeemed human bodies. Help us to put that aside, to mortify the flesh, subdue our sin, so that we might put on the new self, that we might become in practice what we already are in position, that we might live up to our identity in Christ as the people of God, and that we would put on virtues that commend the Gospel, that evidence saving faith, and that bring glory to the Savior. Lord, help us to do that, we pray. And now as we come before You in Your Word, as always, we beg of You, help us to understand the Word of God. We are Your servants. Teach us Your statutes. Help us to know Your truth, that we might walk in it all the days of our life for the praise of Your great name. Amen. Alright, well, Titus chapter 1 will be our passage for this morning, Titus chapter 1. I introduced the book to you last time, which feels like eternity ago now, but I gave you a brief general introduction last time, and this morning we're going to begin to dig into the first actual passage that's set before us, and that is the first four verses. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Last time I presented to you several matters of 
introduction, five matters to be precise. Uh, matters of introduction that I trust will help us as we work our way through the epistle. It's important that we understand the historical context of a book so that we can accurately interpret the statements that we find throughout the book. And those five matters of introduction we looked at last time were the author, which was Paul, the place and date of writing, it was written from Nicopolis around 52 to 55, or 62 to 65 AD, the recipient Titus, the theme, which is the organization, doctrine, and conduct of an effective evangelistic church. That sounds pretty relevant, doesn't it? And then finally, the outline. The outline. I gave you a printed copy of that if you were here a few weeks ago, and I hope you found that to be of some help. But now, with that general introduction kind of out of the way, we can finally dig into the first text and do so with some understanding. So let me read it to you. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even His Word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now obviously this serves as Paul's introduction to the letter, his preface, his greeting, his salutation. And Paul begins this letter basically as he does all of his letters, with an opening greeting to those to whom he writes. And it's pretty convenient. It begins with the author's name at the beginning instead of at the end like we do today. That makes a lot of sense if you ask me. But that's how Paul begins. An opening salutation. And this is a fairly common greeting for New Testament times. As I said, it begins with the name of the author. It contains some details about the author. Then it has the name of the recipient and it closes with a final benediction, a uh, well-wish toward those to whom he writes. So this is a pretty innocent enough, ordinary enough, simple enough salutation on the surface. However, as is always the case with the great Apostle Paul, he doesn't waste a word. As one writer put it, every word weighs a pound. He uses this opening greeting as an opportunity to present glorious, rich, theological, and practical truth. Some of Paul's greetings are a little longer than others. For instance, his greeting to the Colossians is comprised of only two verses, whereas his greeting to Galatians takes up five verses and Romans seven verses. Here in Titus, the opening consists of four verses. In terms of words in the Greek, Titus is second only to the book of Romans. Romans contains 71 Greek words, whereas Titus comes in a distant second with 46 Greek words. So this is then a very significant salutation. It's very compact, very pregnant, very condensed. He says a lot here in a few words. I don't know if anyone could have said this much in so few of words than the great Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. There is a world of truth in these four verses. This is kind of the passage you're 
tempted to skip over, isn't it? Just hurt and read over. It's just, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's Paul, it's Titus. Okay, that's 2,000 years ago, ancient history. But if we take our time and work through it as we are going to, and you already know that, I think we're going to find some very valuable lessons in this passage. Essentially, what most of the four verses consist of is Paul's description of himself and his ministry. And in that sense, he becomes, not only for Titus, but for all believers throughout all time, a wonderful example. He becomes a model for us to emulate. You see, what was true of the Apostle Paul in a more unique sense is true of all believers in a more general sense. All believers are called to ministry. All believers are called to service. All Christians are enlisted in the Lord's army. No one is to be sitting on the sideline. No one is to be sitting on the bench. All of us are thrusted into the Lord's work. We all long to hear those words, don't we? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. However, there is a very damaging idea that has snuck into some churches and among many Christians today. And it is the idea that the pastor is the one called to do all of the ministerial work. He's the only one called to ministry. After all, that's what we pay him for, isn't it? We're called, pastors are called to do all the work, we just come and sit on the pew. That's a common idea. I know that's not the idea here, thankfully. I know that I... I'm so grateful and so privileged to shepherd a flock that understands that's not the case. But that is a dominant idea that I think plagues a lot of churches. However, if you consider the data of the New Testament, you'll find that that's not the case. That's not the case. In reality, all Christians are called, listen carefully, all Christians are called to do the work of ministry. If you're a believer, you're a minister. All Christians are ministers. This is a logical conclusion to the priesthood of all believers. Every member ministry. Every member ministry. We're all priests to God. We're all ministers before Him. That is who we are as Christians. It's not a matter of are you a minister. It's a matter of are you going to be a faithful minister or an unfaithful minister. That's the question. In Ephesians chapter 4, a passage that we have been reading through over the last couple of weeks, a passage that you're familiar with, I trust, as Paul is explaining to the Ephesians the purpose for which Christ has given leaders to the church, in verse 12, he says that Christ has given pastors to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's important. That's important. Christ gives pastors to the church to equip the whole church for ministry. All the saints for ministry. So that's the reality then. That's what the Bible teaches. All Christians are called to ministry. All Christians are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. If not, you're not a Christian at all. True believers are servants of Christ. And all of us are called to be faithful. All of us want to be faithful. In fact, if you're A Christian, you want to be effective in your ministry, don't you? You don't want to waste your life. You want to get to the end of the race, like the Apostle Paul saying, I finished my course. 
I've finished the ministry that has been given to me by the Lord Jesus, and I know that God is using my labor not in vain, but effectively in the advancement of His kingdom. All of us want that, don't we? We want to be effective ministers. In fact, you could say this, all healthy churches are made up of members who serve as faithful ministers. All healthy churches are made up of ministers who serve as faithful churches. If Christ is King is going to be a healthy, thriving local church, then we have to have members who serve faithfully. And I think we do. And I praise God for that. And the only way, by the way, the only way to be a faithful minister is to have the right priorities, the right commitments, the right devotions. And in this passage, this opening salutation, Paul essentially outlines for us his own priorities, and they become, in some sense, the priorities of every faithful Christian and every effective minister throughout all time. There are a total of six of them here for us, and we'll look at the first few this morning, and Lord willing, we'll look at the rest of them next time. So six priorities of a faithful minister. Number one, the right master. The right master. A faithful minister must be committed to the right master. Look at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God. Paul begins this letter as he does all of his letters by writing his name and thus affirming that he's the author. We have Paul's own testimony to his authorship. We talked a little bit about Paul last time. He really needs no introduction to most of us. He was known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee, a violent persecutor of the church, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the prestigious rabbis of the day. If there was anyone advancing in Judaism above all of his contemporaries, Paul said it was me. I was the big guy. I was the big shot in Judaism. No one did more to stamp out Christianity than Paul. And we know he failed, didn't he? Because he became the very thing he sought to stamp out. He became the greatest propagator of the truth that he sought to eradicate. He was miraculously converted on the road to Damascus, and Saul the persecutor became Paul the persecuted. Saul the Pharisee becomes Paul the apostle. He becomes then a wonderful example of how the Lord can take even the worst of His enemies and make them the best of His friends. Isn't that amazing? It becomes a wonderful model for us and the transformation that takes place at salvation. Paul was a very zealous man. Very, very zealous. In fact, very few men in the history of the world can say they've matched his passion and zeal Before he was converted, that passion was directed at persecuting Christianity and advancing in Judaism. But after he saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that zeal was redirected to advancing the kingdom of God. He becomes, as he says here in verse 1, a bond servant of God. So Paul starts the letter by asserting his humble position as a bondservant. 
It's a funny way to introduce yourself, isn't it? Paul could have had many titles he could have used to begin the letter. He could have talked about his the fact that he knew Greek and Hebrew. He was a Roman citizen. He could have talked about all those accolades that he mentions in Philippians chapter 3. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he begins on a humble note and affirms that he is a bondservant. And that word bondservant translates the Greek word doulos. doulos. And the word literally means slave. Slave. More than likely, it's not translated that way in some translations because of the cultural sensitivity to that word because of our nation's past with slavery. But that's what the word means. It means slave. If you have an ASB like me, your translation says bondservant. If you have an ESV or a KJV, your translation will simply say servant. But if you happen to have a Holman Christian Standard Bible, your translation says slave. That is the right translation. This word means slave. It refers to someone who belongs to another. One who has no ownership rights of his own. Someone under the complete authority of his master. You see, there is a difference between a servant and a slave. There's a difference. We, we often use the title servant in a noble way. You know, we might say, so-and-so has such a servant's heart. You ever heard that? Mm-hmm. This person's such a servant. And what we mean by that is that this person willingly and voluntarily sacrifices his time to serve others. It's a noble thing. It's a noble thing. You're not obligated to serve as a servant. You know, I might clean the church. I might serve the church by cleaning the building. I might serve the church by transporting people to and from church. I might bring a meal to someone who is sick. But I might not do those things. You're not obligated to clean the building. You're not obligated to take so-and-so home after service. That's your prerogative. That's your choice. You willingly and voluntarily do that. But the word doulos does not carry the notion of nobility. This isn't a person who willingly serves at his own whim. This is a person who serves because he's under the authority of a master. Because he doesn't own himself anymore. For a, a slave, serving is his obligation and duty. In the Gospels, Jesus says after we've done all of our work, we should say we're just slaves doing what we ought to do. This is, we don't need a pat on our back. This is our obligation. This is what we ought to have done. So for a slave, serving is his duty. He has a slave. Paul saw himself that way. He saw himself as a slave of God. One completely owned by God as his master. This is, by the way, the only time he refers to himself as a bondservant of God. In Romans 1.1, he refers to himself as a slave of Christ. For Paul, there's no difference. God and Christ are one. He was a slave of God and Christ. But here is the only time he refers to himself that way. Paul knew that what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 was true. He knew that he had been bought with a price, he was no longer his own, and therefore he must glorify God in his body. He must, as Romans 12 says, offer his body as a living sacrifice to God. Yield himself completely to his master. So Paul saw himself as one under divine authority. And that is exactly what made Paul such an effective minister of the gospel. Such a faithful 
minister of Christ. He knew that he was not his own. He knew that he had been bought, purchased, owned by another. He had submitted himself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by faith. He was totally sold out for God. He had set aside his own dreams, his own agenda, his own hopes, his own purposes, his own plans, his own glory, because he saw himself as a slave of God. So that's how Paul begins. By reminding Titus, who is this young man here on the island of Crete, ministering a bunch of churches filled with carnal people around the churches and even in the churches, there are false teachers propagating damning heresies. And Titus has his work cut out for him. And Paul begins by reminding him of his own allegiance to God as the right master. By the way, this title may also have been for the purpose of establishing his own authority. Establishing his authority. You see, that title, bondservant, is a title very common to the Old Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 49, wrong C word, Moses is referred to there as the servant of the Lord, or the servant of God. Same thing in Revelation 15, 3. He's referred to as Moses, the bondservant of God. Same word there, doulos, slave. Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. The prophets were in a unique way the servants of the Lord. So that title, bondservant of God, then, is reserved for Unique people in the Old Testament like Moses and the other prophets. And Paul may have that in mind. He may be using the word that way as well. Paul may be putting himself on equal ground with the Old Testament prophets, thus establishing his authority to speak for God. So the title then certainly applies to some men in a unique way, like Moses and Paul and other prophets. But in a more general sense... All Christians are slaves of God, aren't we? All Christians are slaves. James 1.1, James, the half-brother of the Lord, says, He is a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Philippians 1.1, we read, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Not only was Paul a slave, but so was Timothy. So was Timothy. This title then applies to both apostles like Paul and non-apostles like Timothy. It applies to all believers. All Christians are slaves of God. That's what Romans 6 teaches us. If you've never read Romans 6, glorious chapter, Paul is describing the believers' freedom from the power of sin. And in that chapter, verse 22, he says this, All Christians have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Did you get that? To be freed from sin is to be a slave of God. We've been bought with a price. We're not our own. We must glorify God in our bodies. You've been purchased, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the imperishable blood of a lamb without blemish, the blood of Christ. 
<clears throat> so we are slaves. If He is kudios, we are doulos. If He is Lord, we are slaves. And what does Jesus say in Luke 6? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's our obligation. So that is the starting point of effective ministry. No one can be an effective minister who is not totally and completely sold out for God. Totally and completely yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you want to be a faithful Christian? Do you want to be a faithful member of the local church? Do you want to be an effective minister of God? Do you want God to use you in the advancement of His kingdom so that your life matters for more than 50, 60 years? Do you want that? I want that. If you want that, this is the starting point. If you want to be a powerful minister for the kingdom of God, you must be committed to the right master. You must see yourself as one under the divine mastery of God. Now maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, that, that idea of being a slave is repulsive. And we can understand why someone may think that in light of the cultural sensitivities of what happened in the past and what's happened throughout history with slavery. There's been many forms of slavery and many of them have been evil and corrupt. So perhaps you find being a slave repulsive. If you do, know this. Every person is a slave. Every person is a slave. Either of sin leading to death or of God leading to life. Either of sin and Satan or God and righteousness. But every person is a slave. So as MacArthur notes, it's not autonomous freedom that we need. It's another form of slavery that we need. Slavery to Christ. Who, by the way, is a gracious master that lays down his life for his slaves and calls them his friends. That's the master I want. The one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Paradoxically, being a slave of God is a freeing slavery. That's where freedom is found. Freedom is found in slavery to God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're a slave to sin and Satan, I don't care what your profession is. I don't care if you read your Bible. I don't care if you go to church. If you're enslaved to sin and Satan, you're on the path to destruction and hell. You're wasting your life. You need to yield to Christ. You need to come to Him. You see, the bad news is, by nature, we're all guilty of sin and therefore under condemnation, but we're also enslaved to sin and therefore under its domination, its dominion, its tyranny. You talk about tyranny, we hear a lot about that today, don't we? And rightly so. But if you think our president or our governing authorities are putting us under some sort of tyranny, then you've never met sin, have you? Sin is an utter bondage. And if you're not a Christian... You're in a miserable bondage that leaves, that ultimately leads to damnation. Damnation. The good news is Christ gave Himself and purchased our freedom. That's the good news. The good news is if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You'll have real freedom. 
All who come to Him in repentance and faith, forsaking their sin, embracing Christ, find life and freedom in Him. So if you're not a believer today, please, I beg you, come to Christ. So we must then consider ourselves slaves. Why should you get out of bed in the morning and read your Bible when you're tired? Why should you invite your neighbors over and other members of the church over for fellowship and hospitality when you don't feel like it? Why should you share the Gospel even though you're afraid? You hear that phrase a lot, share the Gospel without fear. doesn't happen. You can't do that. So why do you do it? Why do you do it even though you're afraid? It's because you're God's slave. That's why. Your life isn't your own. You don't set the agenda anymore if you're a Christian. You must yield to Christ. Why should we obey God and not men? Why should we keep the church open if the government says close? Because we obey God because He's our our master, we're His slave. That is the starting point of effective ministry. That's where it begins. You cannot even begin effective ministry if you don't start there. What is it that leads these missionaries to Afghanistan when they know they may lose their lives? What is it that led Paul to faithfulness until the end, even though he might die, he knew he was going to be martyred, having his head chopped off in Rome? What would lead someone to do that? Are they psychos? No, they know and see themselves as slaves of God under divine authority. Their lives are not their own, so they live not for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Do you see yourself that way? Are you yielding to Him? Are you committed to Him? What areas of your life are you holding back? What are you holding on to? No one can be an effective minister who doesn't start with the right master. Slavery. God. So may we yield ourselves to Him in hopes that He would use us for His glory. So priority number one then is the right master. But there's a second one here for us. Paul further describes himself in verse 1 and as he does we see a second priority of an effective minister. Number two. This seems basic enough. The right ministry. The right ministry. An effective minister must be committed to to the right ministry. Look at verse 1 again. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul has asserted his humble position as a slave. Now he establishes his divine authority as an apostle. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now what is an apostle? What is an apostle? We've obviously in Christian circles heard those words since we were young if you grew up in a Christian home. If you're like me, you had no clue what that meant. Absolutely no clue. In fact, there are two words that Christians often conflate and get confused about. And they are the terms apostle and disciple. Those two words are not synonymous. Those two words do not mean the same thing and they do not refer necessarily to the same person. You see, every Christian is a disciple, that is a follower of Christ, but every Christian is not an apostle. So what then is an apostle? The Greek noun, apostolos, refers to an envoy, a delegate, an emissary, 
an ambassador, a messenger. It refers to someone who is sent by another and represents him in some way. Very basic, here it is. An apostle is an authoritative messenger. An authoritative messenger. The verb apostoleo means to send. The noun apostolos refers to the one who is sent. It is a divinely sent authoritative messenger. And the apostle Paul, or and the apostle, by the way, is as the man himself. To reject an apostle is to reject who? The one who sent him. If a king sends a royal ambassador or even one of his slaves with a message and you reject that message, it isn't the messenger that you've rejected. It's the one who sent the message. In this case, God. So it's one who ministers with authority, delegated authority. Now the word can be, and at times is used in the New Testament in a more general and non-official, non-technical sense. It's used that way a few times in the New Testament. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, Paul refers to the messengers of the churches. Same word there, apostolos. They were apostles of the churches in what we might call a little a sense, a non-technical sense. But when it's joined with the words of Jesus Christ, as it is here in verse 1, it always refers to a special class of men, what we might call big A apostles. You see, Paul was not merely a messenger of men or of a council or of some group of men. Paul was divinely sent by Christ. He was a divinely sent authoritative messenger of Jesus Christ. That means Paul spoke with divine authority. To reject Paul was to reject God. Didn't Jesus say that in Matthew 10? He rejects you, rejects me. He rejects me, reject my Father. That's the way it works. If you reject the Apostle, you reject the sender. And by the way, this needs to be said. There are no Apostles today. Did you write that down? There are no Apostles today. The office of Apostle has ceased. It is no more. To prove that, all you need to do is consider the qualifications of an apostle. To do that, turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. That is the fifth book of the New Testament, in case you're wondering. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Acts picks up where the Gospel of Luke leaves off. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The first 11 verses record the ascension as Jesus is taken up before them and taken out of their presence by a cloud into heaven. And then verses 12-16 through 16 describe what the apostles did in Jerusalem as they waited for the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 1, and here essentially Peter concludes that since Judas committed suicide and defected and betrayed the Lord, and since Jesus originally chose 12 apostles, leaving only 11 now, they needed to replace Judas. They needed a 12th man. So look at verse 16. Acts 1, starting in verse 16. Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, 
who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, required a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. It's a little, that's R-rated, isn't it? Rated R after dark. Uh, apparently after Judas hung himself, the branch or the rope broke, and he fell down the mountainside and busted himself open, and it got pretty gross. That's kind of one of those horror movies. Verse 19, And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so then in their own language the field was called Hekeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day He was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of His resurrection. There's the first qualification. To be counted among the apostles, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You had to see with your physical eyes the risen Lord. And there were only two men who fit that description. Verse 23. So they put forth two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, that guy had a lot of names, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. There it is. That's the next qualification. To be an apostle, you had to be chosen directly by Christ. Not by not having merely your the pastors lay their hands on you. You had to be chosen by the resurrected Christ. He says, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So you got that clear picture? To be an apostle, you had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ and chosen directly by the resurrected Christ. The original twelve were chosen by Christ directly on the mountain. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 10. And then Matthias was chosen directly by Christ through the casting of lots, a legitimate means of discovering God's will until the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. But there's another man. There's another man that became an apostle. And we know him as the Apostle Paul. So back to Titus 1 now. Titus 1. Paul was an apostle in this sense. He met the qualifications, didn't he? Did Paul ever see the Lord? Yeah. On the road to Damascus in Acts 9 and at other times as well. In fact, he tells the Corinthians that at one point he was called up to the third heaven in paradise where he saw things and heard words, inexpressible words not permitted to speak. So Paul was an eyewitness. And he was chosen directly by Christ on the road to Damascus. He meets the qualifications. He fits the description. Paul was then, as he says here, and rightly so, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what were the responsibilities of an apostle? What did they do? Obviously, they were to be witnesses of the resurrection. We can deduce that much from Acts 1. They were also to prove their apostolic authority by working miracles. 2 Corinthians 12.12 says, The signs of a true apostle are accompanied among you. You want to refute the charismatic movement? That's a good verse to remember. The signs of a true apostle were accompanied among you. How? 
Do you distinguish between true apostles and false apostles? Very simple. True apostles heal the sick, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, and so forth. False apostles can't do that. They're phonies and imposters. That's what they are. Very simple. So they're witnesses of the resurrection. They work miracles to prove their authority. And they were also called to lay the foundational doctrines for the church by writing Holy Scripture. Ephesians 2.2, sorry, Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. If the foundation is laid, you don't need to lay it again. We don't need more apostles. They did their job. And the foundation they laid was their teaching. The New Testament. The apostles are only the foundation of the church confessionally and doctrinally. That's it. Apostolically. So they laid the doctrines of the church by writing the New Testament. Paul was an apostle in that sense. He spoke with divine authority. His words are to be received not as the words of men, but for what they really are, the words of God. So Paul, with this title, establishes his authority. And he doesn't do it primarily for Titus' sake. Titus never would have questioned Paul's authority. Paul knew, or Titus knew that Paul was an apostle. He never would have questioned that. Paul is doing this and saying this to establish his authority among the churches of Crete. And to establish Titus' authority among the churches of Crete. Titus ministered as a delegate of the apostle. He had delegated authority. Why should the churches of Crete listen to Paul in this letter? Because Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why should they listen to Titus? Because Paul as an apostle deems Titus his apostolic delegate. This is then, at the very beginning, a stamp of authority on Titus's ministry. Paul establishes his authority. The churches of Crete were to receive this letter as God's words, and so must we. As the words of God to us. That's why we're going to spend months working through this letter over every word. That's why we're going to labor over every word, because it is not man's word, God's word. So apostle here refers to that special class of men who had seen the risen Lord, who were able to do miracles to substantiate their apostolic authority, and who laid the foundational doctrines for the church by writing Holy Scripture. To that special class of men belonged the original twelve, Judas replaced by Matthias, Paul then later added as one untimely born, and with the death of John at the end of the first century, the office of apostle ceased it is no more, along with the signs of an apostle. That's why people aren't at St. Jude Hospital raising the dead and healing sick cancer patients, because they don't have those abilities to do that. There are no apostles today. There's no man alive today who has seen the risen Christ, who can perform these miracles, who meets the qualifications. There are no apostles. But being dead, they still speak. They still minister to us today through their writings in the New Testament. So that's the way Paul was an apostle. An apostle of Jesus Christ. This was the ministry to which he was called by God and to which he was committed. He was committed to the right ministry. 
In the same way, if we are to be effective ministers of Jesus Christ, we must likewise be committed to the ministry that God has called us to. We must be committed to the service that God has for us. Paul may have been an apostle in a unique sense, but in a more broad sense, all Christians are messengers of Jesus Christ. All of us are to be witnesses for Christ to the uttermost parts of the earth. All of us are called to go into the world as His messengers and His witnesses, preaching the gospel to every creature and making disciples of all the nations. That is our calling and responsibility. And as true believers, we have been given unique gifts and specific ministries by which we may serve God and the local church. How do you determine those gifts, by the way? We're going to be effective ministers. It's probably helpful that we have an idea of what God's called us to do. How do we determine our gifts and the ministry God has for us? I've given you some tips before. Let me rehash some of those really quickly. First of all, Consider your passions. Consider your passions. What are you passionate about? What drives you? What do you love to do? It's likely, as a Christian, that that might help you figure out what your spiritual gifts are. I love to preach and to teach. I'd rather die than not preach, as Steve Lawson says, as Charles Spurgeon says. So I conclude this is what God has me to do. I can't tell you how hard it was to sit three weeks in the house in quarantine and not preach. I almost went crazy. That's a good good indication that God's called me to do it. So consider your passions. What are you passionate about? Secondly, what are you good at? What are you good at? What do you do well? Where do you thrive? That'll probably help you figure out what your gifts are. And regardless, if we want to categorize them as spiritual gifts and natural talents, we can use all of them in the service of God. So what are you good at? Thirdly, ask others. Ask others. We often think we're good at a lot of things we're not very good at, right? Or sometimes we miss things that we're good at and we don't think we are. So sometimes it's helpful to get the opinion of someone outside of ourselves. Sometimes the insight of others helps us figure that out. So ask others. You might say, hey, you know, I'm trying to figure out what the Lord has for me. In your estimation, what do you think? What has God gifted me to do? That could be very helpful. Fourthly, survey the Scriptures. Survey the Scriptures. Read the passages in the New Testament that list the spiritual gifts, like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Being ignorant of what gifts there are can hinder you from determining what your gifts are. So that's important. Even though the lists there are not exhaustive but merely samples, they're still critical when it comes to helping us understand understanding the kind of giftedness that God has given us. And then finally, this one's very simple. Get busy. Get busy. Just do ministry. Get your hands dirty. Get into the local church and serve the local church. And then as you do that, you will experientially discover what your gifts are and what God has for you to do. So there you go. Those are ways to discover your gifts. That way you may fulfill your God-given ministry. You know, perhaps you have the gift of service. Maybe you'd use that gift by transporting people to and from church or cleaning the building or so on and so forth. Maybe you have the gift of music and you would play an instrument or sing for us. We know how well Martha plays for us and how not so well I sing for us. So we could always use a new singer. That's, we always have that available. 
Maybe you have the gift of mercy and you'll use it by bringing members meals when they're sick and, and checking in on those who are downtrodden and depressed. Maybe you have the gift of teaching and you'll use it to teach Sunday school if we ever have that again and service when I'm out or to preach the sermon when I'm out. Many ways, isn't there? There are many gifts, a variety of ministries, and many ways to serve the Lord. So get busy. Figure out what your gifts are and fulfill your ministry. May you be committed to the right ministry. So those are the first two priorities. A commitment to the right master and the right ministry. We are slaves of God and messengers of Jesus Christ. We are to yield ourselves entirely to Him as our master and we are to be faithful witnesses for Him discovering our gifts and fulfilling our ministries for the praise of His glory. So as we close, I ask you, are you committed to the right Master? Are you committed to the right ministry? Are you an effective and faithful minister of Jesus Christ? I hope so. May it be. Well, that's the first two. Next time, Lord willing, we'll consider a few more. But for now, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to help us apply these truths to our lives for His name's sake. Father, thank You so much for the plethora of truths that we've heard just this morning. Your Word is like a never-ending well that never runs dry. Certainly, Your Word, its well is deeper than our bucket. It fills us, overwhelms us, and yet it's just scratching the surface. The infinite wisdom that it contains is absolutely extraordinary. We can say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, we have more wisdom than all of our teachers, all of our counselors, all of our enemies, because we meditate on Your Word. What glorious truth. Even in just half of a verse this morning, we've seen so much for us to learn. I pray that we would be like Paul, a people totally sold out for God, totally yielded to Christ, faithful to fulfill the ministry He's given us, serving as Your slaves for Your glory. Help us to do that, we pray. Amen.